Well, good morning. If you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. In just a second or two, we're going to begin reading from verse 17. And also, I'm actually going to read from uh, 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8. So if you want to do that too. But our main text this morning is, of course, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 17. And as always, if you have a question about what was said or sung or read or about Jesus, then please um, be happy to try to answer that question for you. All right. All right, let's, let's read verse 17. You ready? In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat, for as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. (coughs) And one Peter. Finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. Because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Four, whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from evil, deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Amen. Let's pray together and may God give us understanding of his word this morning. Father, every good work and thought found in us is only by the total effect of your power and your grace. And God, if you would hold back any portion of your help, we would be undone and we would be of no lasting use. So, Father, as we open up your word to study it, may the spirit of the living God be our teacher and help us in every way for Jesus' sake. Amen. What is wrong with our world? That's a question that people have been asking as a result of the events that have taken place in the recent days, weeks, and months across our land and, of course, across the globe. What is wrong with our world? How come it is so unbelievably broken? How do we account for its carnage, its imbalances? And why is it that with all the advantages the world enjoys at this point in our history, why is it that in all of our attempts uh, for unity, whether it be nation to nation, person to person, husband to wife, parents to kids, or church member to church member, why does it seem in many cases, so absolutely hopeless. And sometimes it would seem that almost no one is completely happy about anything. Husbands, wives, kids, workers, owners, citizens, Christians. Almost every conversation is is dipped in unhappiness, so much so that if you are relatively okay and people get wind of that, then there's something wrong with you, right? You're not doing enough or you're hiding something. So why is there so much conflict in our world? Why so much hostility? How is it that unity 
is so terrifically hard to achieve? And perhaps the better question might be, when will it all end, right? When, when will it all end? And so the one place you would think you would enjoy harmony and unity and love in the case of the Corinthian church is not happening. Now, the issue before the church in Corinth this morning is disharmony in the church as they meet around the Lord's table. In other words, as was plain in the reading, some were snubbing, communing with others around the table, which was not exclusively theirs. So the very people that Christ had saved by his precious blood, some thought unworthy of their time, their attention, and their provision. If you like, as our title says, they were not loving the neighbor they didn't choose. So we know it's one thing to love people across the ocean who we do not know, but only see and we spend no time with. But it's quite another. And how much more does God want us to love our actual neighbor in Christ's church? Because as in the case of the Corinthian church, sometimes it's our Christian neighbors, our brothers and sisters in Christ, in the church, that we find most difficult to love. The very gifted G.K. Chesterton wrote, We make our friends, we make our enemies, but God makes our next-door neighbors. The old scriptural language showed so sharp a wisdom when it spoke not of one's duty towards humanity, that's kind of now, but one's duty towards their neighbor. The duty towards humanity may often take the form of some choice which is personal or even pleasurable. Right? We feel good about doing good for someone we don't know. But we have to love our neighbor because he or she is there. A much more alarming reason for a much more serious operation. And our neighbor in the church is the sample of humanity which is actually given to us by God. In other words, when it comes to the church, the local church, God has arranged all this. Right? So yes, we, we do get to choose our community. But we don't get to choose who else joins that community. Now, if your Bible's open, and I sure hope it is, it's very apparent that in verse 2, Paul was happy to commend them. But now, in verse 17, he's ready to reprimand them. So let's just go right to our first point, the context. And again, the context is pretty clear. It has to do with the church's gathering in obedience for what should have been a sincere, uh, a profound display of fellowship and unity. It should have been a picture of the church's union with Christ and each other. And how Christ's life-changing power, given through the suffering of Christ on the cross, how that changes everything. And instead of that, in the verses, and then in surrounding verses, we find that there are differences which are being heightened, and their unity then was missing. Now, in the previous chapters, we worked through, there's a, there's a pattern that we better not miss. The Corinthian church was just so into themselves. They were self-assertive. They were very self-confident. They, they dealt in spiritual subject matters. They just were sure that they had it all down right. They were ignoring their gospel privileges and their gospel responsibilities. They were ignoring the fact that everything right about them, Christ did. And they were ignoring basic Christian conduct. So the humility which is demanded by people who are saved by God's grace was completely missing in the church, right? Saved by grace should make us humble. 
In fact, Paul gives two appeals. Let me just give you one appeal. It's 1 Corinthians 3. This is what he says to them about unity. I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you're not ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. Okay, here's why. You're still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? It's a rhetorical question. Of course you are. Are you not acting like uh, mere unsaved people? Now, I hope you understand what Paul's saying. Disunity and those who spread it in Christ's church are nothing more than people behaving like baby Christians or, another way Paul says it, is their behavior is no more than worldliness. It is secular. It is greedy. It is self-indulgence. So here's a great definition of division in the church. The exaltation of the self at the expense of Jesus Christ and others. Christ is the head of the church. He arranges things for harmony and unity. He is the head of the body. And the divisive person works against that. In fact, uh, Galatians 5, maybe you want to read that later on today for homework. Paul says the works of the flesh were, and here are three, disagreements, divisions, and discord. Okay, question. Why are disagreements and divisions and discord all works of the flesh? Why are they works of the old sinful nature? Here's your answer. Our unity as believers is based only on the fact that we are all equally sinners who stood equally justifiably condemned before a holy God. We were equally unable to fix ourselves nor rectify our situation if it were not for the grace of God manifested in the suffering of Jesus Christ who bore our sin in his body on the tree. And by that grace, His grace, we are all equally forgiven and we are equally children of God. We are equal in status, different in function, yes, but equal in status, equal in given righteousness. No, we're not any more righteous before the throne of God than anybody else. Equally then part and parcel of the purposes and plans of God. So I think Paul might say something like this to the church in Corinth. What's the problem? What's the problem? Christ is the only way to God. The cross is the only way to be forgiven. And since every day one and everyone will be judged, and since you have responsibilities, set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. Enjoy your equality. Come on now. Pascal, the great mathematician, a scientist, a philosopher, inventor, and Christian theologian said, The feeble-minded are people who know the truth but only affirm the truth so far as it is consistent with their own interest. But apart from that, they renounce it. Clearly, there were some in Corinth who came to the Lord's table in greed and not grace. They they were uh, usurping the interest of Christ and messing up his mealtime and causing division at his table by disunity towards his people. That's number one. That's the context. Second, their meetings. And if your Bible is open, verse 17 would be so hard to hear, would it not? In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. I mean, after all, they might have assumed that as long as we show up to the meetings and everything's okay and acceptable here. My card is punched, face is seen, everything's well. 
In other words, as long as they sat and they sang and they prayed and they listened and they gave, then everything was fine. And Paul says, no, everything's not fine. Verse 17b, your meetings do actually more harm than good. Their division neutralized all the good which should have been done at the supper of the Lord. Which should have been a time, again, of fellowship, of of spiritual enrichment and, and mutual encouragement. A common meal was turned into a time of self-indulgence, shaming the poor members, mocking the Lord's death, mocking the headship of Jesus Christ, and giving, and here's might be the worst besides mocking Jesus, you're giving the watching world more fuel to mock the church of Jesus Christ, which Jesus purchased with his own blood. In essence, they made the Lord's Supper their own supper. I was writing this out, I think it was... Friday afternoon, it was Friday afternoon, and I'm sorry, but a song popped in my head. It was Toby Keith. I want to talk about me. I want to talk about I. I want to talk about number one. Oh, my, me, my, what I think, what I like, what I know, what I want, what I see. I like talking about you usually, Jesus, but in Corinth, perpetually, they were focused on themselves. And many of you will know that this is not new in Scripture, Oftentimes, especially in the Old Testament, God spoke to his people when they gathered. Let me just give you one example. And he told them, your meetings do more harm than good. Amos chapter 5, verse 21. I hate, says God, I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. I have no regard for them. Okay, God, why? So much indulgence. So much inequality. Therefore, woe to the complacent. Woe to those who feel secure. Woe to those who feel like all this doesn't really matter. Now, surely that would have been incredibly hard to hear. Don't come to the temple because your coming doesn't help. It actually harms. But that was God's word through Paul to the church in Corinth. And that is God's word for any church who's misbehaving like the church in Corinth. And as a brief aside, uh, we've been saying week by week, Paul is showing us how important public worship is. But now he's showing us misbehavior in public worship can invite God's discipline. And right behavior in public worship can bring God's blessing. Which one would we want? So no one can come to the house of God as a consumer or a critic. But you can come as a worshiper. And you certainly can come as an inquirer, right? Verse 18, in the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. Now, the word that Paul uses there for division is a word he uses a few times in the letter. It's schismata in the Greek, and we get our word schism from that, and that has the idea of tearing or cutting. And when it's used here in in just about every place in the New Testament, it refers to dissension or division. Now, normally when we think of division in the church, we think of about people arguing with one another, right? You know, I don't, all that stuff. But in these verses, it's clear that this is more of a social difference. And the social difference becomes very apparent when they gather together at the supper. In other words, this is not like a personal problem. This is a social pro- problem. Uh, the rich hung out with the rich, the poor hung out with the poor, the Joneses with the Joneses, the Smiths with the Smiths, the intellectuals with the intellectuals. And the super cool people with the super cool people. And of course, to make things even worse, they were not sharing 
with other people the very thing that God had given them to provide. Right? The very resources they had come from God and they weren't sharing it. And you don't need to be converted not to share, right? Pagans can do that. Thus God shows his displeasure. Your meetings do more harm than good. So again, it wasn't so much that they were arguing. They were isolating themselves from one another. And in the isolation, things were being revealed. They weren't, uh, they weren't rallying around the essential elements of unity, but rather superficial things, debatable things, uh, external things, obvious things. And that was the, dis, uh, the evidence of their disunity. So again, the rich among the church was refusing to share their food with the poor, verse 21. And it probably is this, that they didn't even sit together. They were very concerned about their own appetite. They were very concerned about their own bents. And they were very concerned about themselves even though they were eating at the Lord's table. So this is just selfishness. And the selfishness was just a a symptomatic of a problem uh, that they had. They were turning the occasions for worship as an occasion for self-interest, right? Whenever they gathered, it was, I want to talk about me, I want to talk about mine, I want to talk about number one, and not about Jesus. So, So let's not be very, let's not be too naive as to not think that throughout church history, past and present, some people have used the church of God as a springboard to feed their ego and to take their stand, right? So that worship is not sacred, but it's a show. It's a platform. I need to let them know. And the kind of person like that would find a home in Corinth. And that made verse 19 more understandable to me. Do you see there, verse 19? No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When I first read that, I thought Paul was being sarcastic, right? So they're arguing about non-essentials, things that are not main and plain, to find out which group is right and which group is wrong, and therefore which group has God's approval. That's how it goes in the church, right? I prayed, I was led, you're wrong. Oh, no, 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 I prayed, and, and I am led, and you're wrong. Oh, yeah, well, I prayed, and on and on and on. That's not the case here. Verse 19 is the key to this whole section. First, look at the opening phrase, no doubt there have to be. It's actually one Greek word, and it means essentially it's necessary. This must take place in the church, so says God through Paul's pen. Secondly, see the word difference used in verse 19? It's actually a horrible translation. In fact, if you have like an old King James Version, they actually get it right. They use the word heresy. Because the Greek word there is hieresis, which is where we get our word heresy. Okay, so what is Paul saying? Now, I want you to think with me. In chapter 10, Paul was telling the church, okay, these are the differences of debatable matters versus essential matters. This is how you use your freedom correctly as a Christian. And now he uses two words, verse 18, schism, and verse 19, heresy, to correct the church's manners at this meal. So first of all, schism. Right? This should be understood as an alienation of spirit. In other words, this is, uh, tends to be when people leave the church because of complaints or grudges that they allow to creep in and they give refuge to them and they feed them and they enlarge them and eventually they're so blinded by the fire going on in their head that they can't see the forest for the trees. So this is not doctrinal. This is really personal. It's a schism. We don't like them. We don't like that. He isn't doing this. They're not doing that. Whatever it might be. Creeps in, and a company of God's people, and it's not good. 
It shouldn't happen. But as long as the church has been around, there have always been people who cannot get along, and so they express their division rather than their unity, and they pick up their gear, and they go to another place. And it happens every week, and it happens every month, and it happens in every church. And when it does happen, the world has less cause to see the life-changing power of Jesus Christ and how Jesus can take people from every race and face and place and station in life, no matter what, and bring them all together. However, because it's so much easier to pick up and go rather than to sit down and stay, the divisive person goes. Now, I don't mean to be unkind, but as you think about this in the context of marriage in America, 52% of people in America are divorced the second time they go around. Usually, it's, the, it's in the high 70s. I mean, in most cases, not all, but in most cases, what is it? Things get a little tough. I don't like the way you make me feel. I don't like the way you look. I, uh, you're not very good at this. I thought you were, but now I see you are. And that same group with that same mentality might come into the church of Jesus Christ. And so when the church is no longer meeting, quote, their needs and no longer stroking their head, no longer the place they thought it was or imagined it to be at first, instead of working through it, they're up and they're out. That's schism. But heresy, verse 19, has to do with disagreements about doctrine about what the Bible actually teaches, especially things tied to the gospel. So I want you to think through this with me. Verse 19 is, is, is not about taste or bents, but about doctrine. So, so look at verse 19 while I give this quote to you from myself. I wrote this out. This is a great translation, I think. <laughs> no, no, I'm saying great. This is a, sorry. <laughs> I shouldn't say that. It's pride. This is a good translation of verse 19. And I'm sure somewhere there's like 20,000 better. Okay, how's that? Church. Don't be surprised about doctrinal differences which are bound to come. Differences about the basics of the faith because you should understand God will allow and use this time in the church by the occurrence of heresy on occasion in order to make it very, very clear the distinction between what is true and what is error. To make very, very clear what is biblical truth and what is an exaggeration, an accretion, or just a flat-out lie. Heresy. And God's stamp of approval will be on those with him. Let me give you one example, Acts chapter 20. Paul has been three years in Ephesus. He's about ready to leave. He goes to the beach. He, he prays on his knees with the elders of the church. Before he prays, Paul says this, I haven't hesitated to proclaim you the whole will of God. Right? We didn't skip our Bibles at all. We went through every verse. Keep watch over yourselves and the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseer. Be shepherds of the church of God, which Jesus bought with his own blood. Because I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in and among you, and they will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, right? The people you were singing with, the people you were praying with, and the people you were serving with. Men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Now listen, this is the apostles' church. I mean, this is Paul's church. Who are the big names that we know now? A Swindoll church, uh, Alistair Begg church, MacArthur church. But even in those churches, heresy will arise. So be careful. John Calvin says this on verse 19. In this way, when heresy comes into the church, 
Not only are the hypocrites brought to light, but also, and on the other hand, the sincerity of the faithful is proven. For as on the one hand, this makes plain to us the fickleness of those who have not been rooted in the word of the Lord and the dishonesty of those who have been making a show by pretending to be good men. So on the other hand, it enables the good to give clear evidence of their steadfastness and their sincerity and God's approval. So you guys, Paul's just being a realist. This is a fallen world and church life has to take place in a fallen world. God will not tolerate disunity. Superficial schisms and disconnections, he will not tolerate that on, on secondary issues. There's no reason for that. But he also says there will be heresies that will come to you from time to time. Don't be alarmed because by those things, God's truth, the essential truth will be made clear. You will see, again, verse 19, who has God's approval. All right, so those of you that are listening well, you're thinking, you know what? That's the way basically every epistle in the New Testament was written. And I'm like, I'm, yes, there's a problem in the church. Paul writes to the problem and he writes to fix it. Let me just give you one example. There's a problem in the Galatian church. Some people are saying doctrinally that Jesus isn't enough. You need to have Jesus plus this and this and this. And Paul says, no, no, no. Jesus is more than enough. And by the way, let them be accursed. Uh, let them be anathema. Let them be shown as not having God's approval if they don't believe what I wrote. That's pretty thick, isn't it? And we would then be delusional if we think that verse 19 doesn't apply to us here. In fact, if we didn't think that verse 19 could be an issue here, then we would show 1 Corinthians 10. If we think we are standing firm, be careful that we don't fall. And I want you to know how serious Paul is about this. In fact, he writes Titus chapter 3, verse 10. He tells the elders, warn a divisive person once. Guess what that word divisive is? It's the word heretic. Warn a heretic once, and then warn them a second time. And after that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. In other words, they are not approved. But on the other hand, those who have God's approval, 1 Thessalonians 2, for the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. Same word there as verse 19. And listen to what approved people do. You ready? We're not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. You know we never use flattery, nor do we put on a mask to cover up our greed. God is our witness. We are not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else. In other words, all we want is God's approval. Right? The charlatans in the New Testament, the false teachers, they're like pleasing people and they're talking people up and like, you're wonderful and great. And it's all greed, greed, greed. But the people who have God's approval are not trying to please you. They just want to please God. And that's best for everybody. So Paul's like, differences are inevitable. Heresies will come. And they will come because God wants you to know what is true and what is false. Who are those with God's approval? And who are those who just fabricate truth for their own pleasure? We need to get to the next point, but this is what we know. We know that in the history of the church of Jesus Christ, from its very beginning till its end in heaven... 
right, as we end on earth, excuse me, Jesus said very plainly that there will be many false people among you, right? This is the parable of the wheat and the weeds. They grow together until the harvest, and once the harvest comes, it reveals who is real and who is counterfeit. We know that there will be people taken captive by the evil one, captive to his lies, and they will be introduced into the church. We know that Satan works tirelessly, using every angle he can to break up the unity of the church of Jesus Christ. And we know, we thank God for this, that God can take the evil of Satan and use it for the good of his church. And again, verse 19, to show who is proven, who has God's approval, and who does not. So the secret purposes of God are pretty plain, aren't they? God allows evil people and the evil one to manifest themselves in his church so that error can be seen as error and truth be seen as truth. It's pretty interesting, isn't it? What are the four basics of the church like? Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to pray. And do you see how quickly the evil one comes upon the Corinthian church and he tries to take that lovely Lord's Supper and ruin it? Ruin it. Final point. Paul's question. Now we, we're going to do this more next time we come together, but we can only just address it quickly. Paul says, verse 20, I can't call this the Lord's Supper. Why? Verse 21, no one's demonstrating Christian graces, manners. Their mind on the table were on themselves, right? This is my food. And poor people have poor ways. And I'm hungry. And I always have to bring this. And I always have to do this. And I always bring more than anybody else. Therefore, they weren't thinking about Christ. They were thinking about themselves. They weren't thinking about others. They were thinking about themselves. The rich weren't waiting on the poor. They were eating ahead. The principle here is that they were violating the unity of the church by thinking only of themselves, by feeding division and feeding themselves and ignoring the other. They said yes to greed and no to grace. Paul says pretty plainly, doesn't he? Verse 22 at the beginning, you know what? If that's the case, just stay at home. (laughs) Eat your meat at home. And so he says, verse 22b, do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? Right? Do you think so little of the church of God? Do you think so little of others? When you, when you congregate this way, when any church congregates that way, it's very clear that they do not know the Lord's authority and they do not know the Lord's presence. They have no awareness of the presence of God in a place like this. They've forgotten that it is the Lord's table, that this is the Lord's church, and this is the Lord's gathering, and the, at the gathering is the Lord's people. And they're ruining it. And Paul says, just stay at home. So the key question then, what does the Lord want at his table? Well, this is what he wants. He wants harmony. He wants everyone well fed. He wants people sharing happily. He wants real communing. He doesn't want subsets and cliques. He wants people to be grateful for Christ and for his death that gave them forgiveness of sin and a standing before God. And he wants us to be really, really great to our neighbor who we did not choose. 
So in a moment, we have the privilege of enjoying the Lord's table. It's not a meal. It's not even a snack. But it is the Lord's. And he is united to us who are his. And he says, we must be united to each other who are his. This is our privilege because it's his table. Let's pray together. Our gracious God, thank you for the gospel. Nothing I said this morning would matter at all if Christ did not bear our sin by coming in flesh, putting himself on the cross so that we might know forgiveness and eternal life with you, the living God, and enjoy the privilege of being found in your church. For Christ's sake, we pray these things. Amen.